I read comics. Show number sixty. paperback actually you know what it's not even a paperback it's a hardcover but you know i'm gonna do that at the end of the show because i have some other stuff i want to talk about first so um thanks to everybody who's been writing in to get the ditko thing Um, i'm just so pleased that so many people want to see it and thanks to everybody who wrote to say how much they liked it because it is brilliant and i'm just astonished that there is no such thing on american television because there totally should be so just a a follow-up a couple follow-up things to that um there was an article in uh at a website called comic mix and it's a column by a guy named mike gold and it's called wizzy's wazoo i don't know why and this is wizzy's wazoo number 38 and it's his take on the ditko documentary So um, I encourage you to go read it. I'll put up a link to it. But I just wanted to read a little bit of what he had to say here because this is so typical of stories around Steve Ditko. And then there's something in the comics, too, that's very similar to this. So he starts off by saying um, he knows Jonathan Ross and he also knows Steve Ditko because they worked on comics projects. So here's a little story that he tells. One of the more interesting experiences I enjoyed was introducing Steve to Ross Andrew. Both came into the business at roughly the same time and, coincidentally, both had drawn Spider-Man, although, of course, only one had co-created the character. Ross was as quiet as he was fascinating. He was well-versed on the Illuminati conspiracy, which was a favored topic of ours, but I digress. We were at DC's old 666 Fifth Avenue offices, talk about conspiracies, and we were in a public space. Ross wanted to know if he could ask Steve a question. I could see Steve bracing himself, but he agreed. Ross made a strange gesture. That is, a Dr. Strange gesture. Why do you draw hands like that? Steve laughed and posed his hand exactly true to form. Exactly. I know you think you can do it. You can't. Only Steve Ditko can. Because it looks more interesting that way, Steve said. Oh, Ross replied. I always wondered. I had heard Steve's laugh before. He has a wonderful sense of humor. Surprising, if you're only familiar with his philosophical stuff. That aspect of Ditko's was just about the only thing missing from Jonathan's documentary. The show ends with Jonathan and Neil Gaiman teaming up in front of what was reported to be the building that housed Steve's studio. True to form, Steve wouldn't submit to an interview, but he did allow the two into his office for a long chat, wherein Steve told them what he told many others, including this reporter, what Ross Andrew wouldn't ask. Jonathan and Neil came downstairs to the camera, gushing as I did when I first left Steve's studio, but they would not tell the Marvel story. Steve trusted them, and they would not betray that trust. And so, on it goes. Everybody has these stories, and nobody's going to talk about it, and I guess we're going to have to wait till he dies before we actually hear any of it. And in the comments, um, people confirm this and um, talk about how they've met him and um, just what kind of guy he was, and it's just all so cool. He's a great person, friendly and smart as a whip, somebody says. Anyway, um, I just think it's great that people have these stories to tell and, and are willing to share what they will, but that there's this huge mystery about it, you know? He's like, Steve Ditko has now reached the status of urban legend, I think, within comics. Um, 
even um, more of a mystery than, I don't know, J.D. Salinger or somebody like that, Thomas Pynchon, people who are mythical as much as they are real people. And yet he continue, he's alive and he continues to work and he talks to people, but there is such a cloud of mystery and enigma and um, specialness about him. I think it's just really, really cool. So um, I will say for the last time that um, if you haven't downloaded the Didco thing yet and you want it, I'm going to make one more offer for it and that's it after this week because quite a few people have asked and I really don't want DreamHost to get pissed off at me. Um, And I'm going to work on putting up something else for people to download if they want it because I kind of like doing this. And as I said before, it almost feels a little bit like I'm doing some kind of public service because it's good stuff. People should see it. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about is another little bit that I'm going to read to you, and it's a blog that I had discovered through, I think, when Fangirls Attack, and it's called Your Webcomic is Bad and You Should Feel Bad. And it's basically a site that reviews bad webcomics, and there are four people involved here, John Solomon, Ted David, Lilith Esther, and Mike Saul, and I think that they're probably all pseudonyms. I know John Solomon is, anyway. He's the main guy. And all of them take the time to go through bad webcomics and dissect exactly why they're bad and how much they suck. And they do it in such a funny way. It really makes me laugh. The other great part about it is that invariably when they review a bad webcomic and tear it into little tiny pieces and then stomp all over it and set it on fire and crumble the ashes into the ocean, the comments explode with people who are diehard fans and have to defend it to the very end. And of course, because it's the internet, it always ends up with sort of a, yeah, you suck thing. But the comments are hilarious, and I love reading the arguments in there. The great thing is that um, whoever John Solomon is, he clearly doesn't give a fuck what people think or who he's offending or anything like that. And he's actually said several times that he thinks the webcomics that he reviews are so bad that nothing could actually save them. So he's not really interested in giving constructive criticism. And I think there's a place for that kind of criticism in the world. You know, not everything has to be constructive criticism. So as much as I try to be constructive, with things that I kind of half like. There are some times when I too feel like you just have to slam something because it deserves to be slammed. So that that said, it's at badwebcomics.blogspot.com and I encourage everybody to go and read a little bit of it. Um, Who knows, you know, there might be something there that, that you like and it might get ripped by them, but there you go. He also says that he's not interested at all in reviewing good webcomics and that they're just sticking with the bad ones. They're actually on hiatus right now for some reason. Now, I wanted to, to say that a long time ago, what's a long time ago? 2004, that's three years ago, which is three centuries in internet time. Over at somethingawful.com, there was a review of a bad webcomic by um, Zach Parsons, and in it he made the following statement. It's my sincere belief that in 10 years, entire cottage industries will exist that do nothing but analyze the psychology behind horrible webcomics. And you know what? It's happened already. (laughs) Why wait 10 years? Um, I knew that quote because my my good dear friend Ginger Mayerson had actually done some reviewing of bad webcomics on her website. And she would specifically targeted one called Boy Meets Boy, which isn't up anymore. Um, And then the subsequent comic to that, which is called Friendly Hostility, which uh, is still up but hasn't improved at all in the last 
I don't know, however many years it's been running. So I encourage you not to go and read Friendly Hostility because it's really stupid. But um, Ginger had done a very similar sort of thing to what the folks on Your Webcomic is Bad are doing in going into really, really deep detail about why things suck. And I can appreciate the time that goes into a review like that where they don't just go, this really sucks, but they talk about each individual webcomic and the things about it that particularly suck. So... um, let me just read a little bit from one of these because I think that um, one of the reasons I like it so much is that they um, talk about bad writing, cliched writing, bad comic book writing, which is a whole genre unto itself, bad art, because most of these webcomics have really, really horrible art, and also about stereotypes. And they, in particular, John Solomon, um, really hits on the fact that so many of these webcomics, and they seem to be all by guys, are horribly misogynistic. And he really calls that out. And it's really refreshing to see that coming from someone who presumably has no vested interest in it. You know, I, I'm, I believe him when he says he's a guy, and I think he's a white guy. And, you know, you, you'd expect him not to get so worked up about it, but he does. And I love that. So let me find a passage here and read it. The webcomic in question that's being reviewed here is called Hookie Dookie Panic. I have no idea what that means. I think I went and I looked at a couple of strips and it sucked so much that I didn't want to read it. But anyway, here's here's John Solomon's criticism. Uh, I'm skipping a lot of it because these reviews are very, very long. And um, y- you can read this for yourself if you want to. Let's see. He says... Skipping the interim filler since HDP, hooky-dooky panic, seems to be as much filler as the human body is carbon and water, the next strip in the sequence welcomes us into the wonderful world of women-hating. Bitch in a box is what she is first called. Apparently, she takes issue with this since she decides to stand up with glowing eyes in the most horrible animu way possible. Webcomic jerks of the world, quit this shit. You're not Japanese no matter how hard you cry yourselves to sleep at night. The glorious Nippon fairy will not visit you and grant your wish to no longer be Baka Gaijin round eye. It wouldn't change a fucking thing about how talentless you are anyway. In fact, the Japanese are not inherently superior at drawing, writing, or anything. Except possibly whaling, but that's only because Inuits don't use giant robots armed with explosive harpoons charged with burning justice. However, insulting epithets and weeaboo facial expressions aside, it turns out that this woman has a name, woman, as in woman, make me a sandwich, which actually works. Our dear bitch in a box complies. Why? Because she's been modded. That is, she has had her free will erased like a stepford wife, and she's out to please her owner in any way he so desires. She's a person who's been enslaved and forcibly made to do anything. So what's the reaction from our two badly drawn main characters at this gross infringement of human rights? Quote, I want one. Said with a sniffle, possibly portraying admiration at Will Cow for having the presence of mind to forgo all this relationship bullshit and distill a woman down to her barest essence. Someone to give you a cold beer and a warm blowjob on demand. That's how Brian Wilson sees a woman anyway. Aside, Brian Wilson is the guy who draws a strip. Not to mention he likes them cute and petite and clutching their teddy bears as they squeal, Oni-chan, not so rough. It is not to last, revealing that Ada which would be the stupidest name in the webcomic if it wasn't for every other character in it, has not only removed her mod chip, but that same mod chip is the size of a fucking house cat. Perhaps some faint glimmer of humanity within Wilson spoke out to him and said, A fucking slave girl? Are you out of your fucking mind? Jesus Christ, dude! Unlikely, since that same glimmer would be chanting, Don't make this fucking webcomic like a mantra. 
No, it's entirely like that Wilson, likely that Wilson's pathetic otaku life made him take more cues from Japan because, gee golly, it's an unbeatable formula. So that's all I'm going to read from this. I think you get the flavor of it. Um, so really, really nice to see him step up. And he does that basically in every single webcomic that I've seen him review because just about every single webcomic that he reviews has some horribly misogynistic stuff in it, whether it's really overt like what we just described. You can go look at those panels and... It's basically what he said. There's a woman in a box, and she has a mod chip in her, and then she takes it out. I mean, it's not funny. It's not even clever. It's just stupid. Um, And sometimes it's a lot more subtle, and he calls that out as well, and doesn't let these guys get away with their subtle woman-hating stuff. And I like that, and I think it's really good. So I think everybody should go and read this and... um, say what you think about it. I mean, I'm curious to know whether I'm the only one who likes this kind of stuff. Well, I can't be because there are hundreds of comments for each of these. It's very much along the lines of um, whole communities that are now built around ragging on for better or for worse, which I totally understand as well, that having been a newspaper comic that I've been reading for years and years, and people like me who have been reading it are just so fed up with it because it's so bad lately. Anyway, um... I think I'm just going to jump right into the review part of this. Well, let me do my little commercials first so I can get that out of the way. Um, Music, as always, by the fabulous aforementioned Ginger Mayerson. Go to her site and download more of it if you want to listen to it. Um, Comic Relief, the only (coughs) comic book store that matters, located in lovely downtown Berkeley, California, where you can find just about anything that you want. And a little commercial for the book Chase and Other Stories, which is now available via Wapshot Press, where I have a little story. Can I just tell you that Ginger and I have been editing this book for the last two weeks and continually finding typos? I was reading stories again for like the 50th time this morning and still finding typos that I hadn't seen before. Like, what is up with that? How can typos do that? Are they growing? They're like mold or mushrooms or something. You read the story 50 bazillion times, and you think you've caught every last fucking thing in it, and then you read it one more time, it's like, oh, I missed that. There should have been a quote here. Oh, my God, there should have been a period here. Or just a a total misspelling, which happened today in something. I just couldn't believe it. Oh, it's making me insane. Um, But to balance that out, I I will recommend one other book before I get to the review. Sorry. Um, And um, I think I've talked before about how much I used to enjoy the Ricky Gervais podcast, and they still put them out occasionally. They just put one out recently, and I went and bought the book by Carl Pilkington called Happy Slap by a Jellyfish. I got it from Amazon.co.uk, and it's one of the funniest books I've ever read. So if you're a fan of, of Ricky and Steve and Carl, and you like the way Carl thinks about things, I encourage you to buy this book. It was expensive, but totally worth it. Okay, now here's the review. This was a library score. Yay, library. And I was a little surprised to see it there. Um, It's the book called uh, Sloth by Gilbert Hernandez, which was published by Vertigo. And it is, in fact, a hardcover edition, which is kind of nice. Let's see. This came out in 2006, but it's still pretty recent and obviously not published by Fantagraphics. It's a whole self-contained story, um, and it's black and white, and it... It follows new characters. These are not any of the characters that he's had or even any of the settings that he's had from his previous Love and Rocket stuff. So none of the Palomar gang are in here. Um, It's the story, it starts off with, of a guy named Miguel who lives in an unnamed town where nothing much happens and there's a fair amount of typical teenage angst that runs through it. Turns out he was in a coma 
for a, a year. There was no reason for him, Miguel, to fall into a coma, and then he woke up from the coma. No reason for that either. And a lot of the first part of the story is him kind of getting his life back on track after being in this coma for a year and how different people react to that. He has a girlfriend named Lita, and they are in a band with um, another guy named Romeo. And in the town that they live in, um, as all towns have a, a place where screwy things happen, this happens to be the lemon orchards. And there's supposed to be a, a monster that lives in the lemon orchards, a goat man. And if you get too close to him, he'll switch places with you. And this is, you know, very much in the vein of, of all small towns where it's either the cemetery or an old abandoned building or, you know, when I lived in New Jersey, there were a, a lot of abandoned mental institutions, which were very scary places to go, um, where there were supposed to be ghosts and monsters and all kinds of things like that. So this is the lemon orchard. So in the first part of the story, we see Miguel, who, even though he's recovered from his coma, is still kind of moving in slow motion, and he kind of likes it that way. He likes that things have slowed down, that they're not at a frantic pace anymore, and he kind of accepts the fact that people make fun of him for that, but he's pretty much okay. And what I thought was really interesting is that he thinks a lot about when he was in the coma. He remembers being in the coma, and he remembers that he really liked it. And that it was a time and a place where he had no responsibilities and he was just kind of floating and he was aware of the people around him and just liked laying there and not having to do anything and not having to be anyone. And that feeling is described several times in the book, actually, by other characters. And I, you know, I totally can relate to that. <laughs> because when your life gets really hectic, there are times when you think, God, wouldn't it be great if I could just lay in bed and not have to get up and do anything? What if I was in a coma? Then I wouldn't have to answer the phone or go to work or, you know, do the things that I'm supposed to do. That could be kind of cool. And that's exactly how Miguel feels. Um, so he is hanging out with his girlfriend and he's in this kind of crummy band. And um, one night the three of them decide to go to the lemon orchard to investigate the whole goat man thing. And some kind of strange stuff happens that they're not really too sure about, and it looks at one point as if they may have actually gotten the goat man on tape. Of course, at the same time that this is happening, Miguel suspects that um, his girlfriend and Romeo, the other guy, are maybe uh, having some kind of relationship that he doesn't know about, and that freaks him out a little. Um, there's also another character who, whose name is Mrs. Sandoval, who is uh, his tutor, and she's a little nuts, and I'm not quite sure why she's in this story. She looks like she's kind of a little older, but she dresses inappropriately young, and she's very paranoid about people being out to get her. So um, she kind of comes and goes, and then nothing really happens with her story, so I'm not too sure about that. We also find out more about Miguel's own personal life, which is that his mom abandoned him when he was young, and his dad's in prison, and a lot of people think that his dad killed his mom and buried her in the lemon orchards because other people have been killed and buried in the lemon orchards. But he's not quite sure about that. So they go back to the lemon orchard at one point, and some get into an argument with, I guess, the caretakers there and go home. And he goes to sleep, and he kind of feels like he's slipping back into the coma. And then you turn the page, and it's Lita who's waking up. And the story suddenly shifts, and she's the one who was in a coma for a year. And it's her life we're looking at now, and her readjusting 
to coming back after all that. And she has Miguel's grandparents, and she goes to school with him. And two of her best friends are guys we saw previously who were kind of these uh, um, punks who were ready to kick the shit out of Miguel. And now they're her friends. And she sees Miguel, and she wants, she likes him, and she wants to get together with him, but they're not boyfriend-girlfriend. And in her life, it's her mom who's in prison and Miguel's dad who's the prison guard. And so she has the same kind of thoughts about being in the coma and she thinks about the lemon orchard and the goat man and stuff. And she eventually gets together with Miguel and they go to a concert to see Romeo, who is in this version of reality, uh, a pop star. They eventually end up hanging out with him after the concert's over and end up back in the lemon orchard again. And then she does start something with Romeo. And then at the end of the book, um, something happens. And Romeo's the one who's in the coma. This isn't really a spoiler. Um, And you're not quite sure what has happened in the book. Now, after I read this, and I read it all the way through at one sitting, pretty much, And I was thinking, okay, did I miss something? So I went online and I read a bunch of reviews and analysis. And everybody talks about this flipping of Miguel and Lita's life. But nobody really explains it. So I'm thinking that you're not really meant to understand it. So I guess you could look at it a couple different ways. That Miguel's life, as we saw it in the beginning, is just Lita's fantasy about what might have happened. Or maybe in some weird way, he switched places with her. Because I think that's what you're supposed to get at the end. When Romeo ends up with the coma, it's that he switched places with with Lita, maybe. Or maybe even with Romeo. So the whole point about the goat man being able to switch places with people maybe has some truth to it. It's very slippery. And I, and I kind of think that's the cool thing about it is you're not quite sure what's happened. You know, in a lot of the Love and Rocket stuff... Um, Gilbert especially played with these elements of magical realism, especially when he was doing the errata stigmata stuff. There were witches and, and demons, and the devil would often show up and have conversations with people, and you know, people would come back from the dead, and there were ghosts and all kinds of stuff happening. And I get the feeling that this story has quite a lot of that in it. Um, it's very subtle, but it's there, and I, and I think the fact that he set all this in a very typical town just, you know, reflects that it's a, it's a town that could be anywhere. And in any town that you look at, there's always going to be undercurrents of weird shit that's going on, whether it's real people having weird things happen or magical things, mysterious things that could happen in there. So that's the whole plot. Um, the art by him is as good as it ever is. I mean, his characters are so expressive and their faces are wonderful and they look like real people and the girls are drawn like real girls and they don't look like stick figures or models or anything. Um, and he he has some really beautiful layouts, especially when he's going through the thoughts of the people who are in comas where they're kind of floating in midair, some full-page panels. You know, he really has this wonderful style of shifting back and forth very quickly between reality and people's thoughts and sometimes it's just a character's face with a black background and word um, thought balloons going through it it's just really really beautiful art and uh, the way he manages to keep characters the same but different throughout Miguel's version of reality and then Lita's version of reality are cool too and you see even minor characters popping up in different unexpected places which I really liked 
So it's a cool, cool book. I don't understand it, but I like it anyway. Um, I think it's it's neat that he got a one-off story together. And I think he said in interviews that you know he's not going to do any more with these characters. This is pretty much um, the the thing that he's done with them. But I I thought that it was great. It wasn't at all what I expected, and uh, I would encourage you to pick this up if you're a fan of Love and Rockets at all. Of course, as I said, it has nothing to do with regular Love and Rockets, but it's it's every bit the feeling and the reality and the um, true to life ness that he always put into Love and Rockets with all of the cast of characters that he's had there that they're real people you feel like you could talk to them or you might see them on the street and the things that they think are what real people would think people contradict themselves they change their minds um, they fall in love with people and then fall out of love with people so it's very much a slice of life with a lot of weird stuff surrounding it so that is the thing that I read that I, I think you should all go and get so I think I'm going to wrap it up for now. I'm really trying hard to get these out a little more often so that y'all don't forget about me. Um, I will say that I went over to iTunes because a couple of people had posted some more reviews and they were really hilarious because they're bad reviews and I always find those very funny. Um, but I guess if you wanted to write a good review or a bad review, you could do that too. Not really into shilling for the podcast, but... Uh, there you go, if you want to do it. Oh, and I should also say that um, I am a member of the Comics Podcast Network, even though I don't really talk about it very much. And it looks like we're all going to try to do a little bit of charity work coming up for Christmas. Um, the Hero Initiative is a cool thing. It's set up by people as a nonprofit to um, help comics creators who are older and, and need some kind of financial help. So I think we're all going to be trying to do a little bit of promotion for that because it's a really, really good cause. So I hope you all had a happy Halloween. I did. I got too much candy corn and then I ate it all. And I hope you all had a chance to watch Scary Godmother because it was really, really good. And um, I'm hoping that for Christmas I'll get a chance to review some Christmas cartoons that are going to be on TV. So until next time, please enjoy another wonderful um, excerpt from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And uh, see you next time. <laughs>